Good afternoon, everyone, and it is Thankful Thursday, and I'm so thankful to be here. Remember that gratitude of the past is one thing, but gratitude of the future is faith. And I have faith in my cohort, my co-host, Michael Unbroken. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, of course, man. It's an honor to be here with you on this Thankful Thursday. Yeah, well, we're very thankful. We got the dynamic duo here, and Bank Cat and Miklos are here, the senior partners at McKinsey & Company. You may have heard of them before. And uh, very curious, gentlemen, I want to talk about this ecosystem economy uh, and how exactly things are interrelated today. What are the driving dependent variables of our economy, which seems to be, as always, unpredictable, but it almost seems to be illogical. Mike, can you hear me? Langer, yeah, do I... you want to start here? Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Go ahead. They're well, too polite. Okay. Nobody wants to talk. Well, we are, we, we, jump are, in. We, are, we are we are very we are very nice with each other. Indeed, <laughs> quite happy to share our thoughts here. We do believe that this is actually the largest big transformation in the economic history of the planet. A total change of how the economy has structured and organized over ten thousand years. Our argument is. Uh, the economy has structured into traditional sectors because of technology needs, because of very traditional supply chains, because of how customers were served in very different models. And we believe that with the advent of technology and driving customer expectations, which then drives technology, this self-reinforcing cycle broke up the barriers between traditional industries and is leading to a new economy, which cuts across traditional sectors, collapses around customer needs, and creates this new organization, a model, what we call ecosystems, where certain players orchestrate customer journeys across sectors, bringing in third parties and deliver customer experiences, which would not have been possible to do it in a traditional sector. It's a, it's a multi-10 trillion dollar transformation, not exactly earth-shattering. You already see its effect in global capital markets. The most, value, most of the most valuable companies in the world by now by market cap are companies which are cutting across sectors, whether you're looking at Amazon or Microsoft or Alphabet. But we believe that this is just the beginning and the impact will be quite transformational. How much of this has to do, especially now with the shift in the economies being looking at digital currency coming into play, losing cash value, like what role does that play in this new ecosystem economy? Because I would have to think it must play a dramatic role, right? Yeah, uh, Michael, there are several drivers uh, that are going to drive this. Uh, obviously, the digital currency we talked about is one of them. Uh, the AI, the, uh, the proliferation of AI and the disruptions that come with AI is going to be another one of them. And in fact, even the geopolitical aspects of how the world is potentially going from truly globalization to perhaps some localization and some local economies. And there are many other factors. So, you know, I'll give you another you know, very interesting, in, in, in along the same lines of the digital currency, uh, the whole space technology and where the space technology is going and where the space commerce is going to go, we would envision that there's going to be some very exciting set of ecosystems that would emerge just in space, space travel, space commerce, space mining, et cetera. And so it's, if, you, if you really look at that, and it's a really incredible, incredible amount of uh, change that we would see um, in the next several decades to come. I think one of the common denominators in all aspects of 
whether it is the economy, production, distribution, uh, engagement of employees, intelligence, uh, will have to be uh, technology driven. That uh, I don't think that most human beings, including consultants from the biggest firms in the world, can really grasp the three aspects that are going to change and have been changing uh, at you know centuries of advancement, which is one productivity in general. Uh, I, I don't think we know how to handle uh, the amount of productivity uh, that is can and, and is occurring because there's people that look like us three, not necessarily like Michael and Brogan, but they look like us three and we think we have a grasp on what these kids can do in an hour, uh, but I don't think we do. And I think the bigger companies, the managers, directors, vice presidents especially, uh, are getting bamboozled uh, by very low productivity that equating back even a year or two years ago, looks like they have these incredible productive forces um, then the second one is accessibility. I don't think uh, that we understand how accessible everyone is and how we can access things so quickly. Uh, I, I, we haven't caught up. Human nature hasn't caught up to how powerful technology is in accessibility. And then one of the last one is, is a reconciliation that can be seen as spiritual, but I don't. I talked about Thankful Thursday. Um, if gratitude is your ability to find uh, light, love, and lessons in uh, circumstance, life circumstance, which includes economy. I don't think we can grasp right now how quickly we're learning and yeah. finding positive. So uh, you guys are far more intelligent and experienced than I am. Do you feel as if human nature has a grasp on how quickly productivity, accessibility, and gratitude is changing? No, I, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't claim, we wouldn't claim we are so much more intelligent than anyone, but here is the thing. I think you're absolutely right on the underlying point, which is the acceleration of change, right? Most of the things which are changing are changing much, much faster than before, whether you were looking at economic growth, everything is, is exponential, not linear. Uh, average life of a company went down to one S&P 500 went down to one quarters of what it has been. Mm. The time to get to a billion dollar valuation went down from around 15 years to around one in terms of the economy. We are now operating in a world which is moving extremely fast, much faster than most people, most job markets, uh, even corporate, corporate <laughs> organization can adapt to. Uh, and you're right, these are all dimensions, access, productivity, uh, gratitude, uh, social, broader social contract are all changing very fast. Where we are optimistic, though, is we do not be, we do believe that in this type of very fast change, it's impossible to have a crystal ball and say, I have a point estimate about the future. But I do believe you can, companies can still do two or three things. Number one, identify the general directions of where the change is going. And generally the big learning in very accelerated change time is don't ever bet against the customer. If when technology changes, when the world is changes, ultimately customers win. If customers want to have an experience when they can buy a home, move in, get it financed, live in it in one end-to-end -end process, it will emerge. Somebody will do it. Maybe a tech company, maybe a bank, somebody will do it. The same way, the same way as customers wanted to have entertainment at their fingertips. So eventually some company comes up with streaming, right? Uh, so this, this is rule number one, don't bet against customers. Rule number two, keep options open. 
we write a lot in the book, and Venkat can speak more about this one, is in case you don't have a point estimate about the future, have the ability to, fast, to fail fast, experiment, try, and uh, have the ability to roll out multiple pilots, close those of them which are not working, have this very high metabolism rate of innovation. And the third thing what uh, we believe is uh, you can do in what we, what we call strategy under our certainty, or sometimes we call it high speed, ultra high speed strategy, is lock in partnerships. Spend a lot of time, try to find the partners. Maybe you don't exactly know the, where the word is coming, but having a network, true partners, not suppliers, uh, can really make a difference. Yeah. I would add one more thing, David, to going back to your three things that you talked about. We believe there's one of the core tenets of our book. We believe that the customer expectations are changing with all the, the three things that you, uh, you described. I think customers want um, the instant gratification. They want, they want you to predict what they want and when they want and how they want, how want to consume it and offer it to them. And we have, there are a lot of research that suggests that as long as you're giving that level of service, they're okay to forego a little, little bit of privacy if needed, or they're okay to, you know, and, and set aside some of the traditional beliefs of what we thought the customers wanted. So I think that customer expectations, customer behavior, customer consumption patterns have a huge shift. And uh, we believe that's one of the key drivers for the ecosystem economy going forward. Yeah, I think that's a really, all those points are really incredible. And, and as you say that, I think that also the, sometimes you have to take that with a little bit of caution. Uh, recently in marketing activities for some very large companies, we've seen them make some huge mistakes in the attempt to try to not necessarily pander to certain demographics, but looking at it as trying to be ahead of what the customer wants and it backfiring tremendously. I think we all know who I'm talking about. And so with that said, what, what I'm curious about then, how do you navigate? What are, what are the adaptations? that you have to have in this new economy when you are trying to do the four things that you just said, but knowing that some of these backfires that we're seeing now are monumental and, and causing market cap share loss like we've never seen before. Yeah, I think, you know, I will go back to the fundamentals like you know what, what David was suggesting earlier. We, we you, you have to really first in the new, this new economic evolution with ecosystems, you really have to first decide where you want to play. Where do you want to play in this evolution? And that is the, to us, that's the fundamental foundational thing you have to figure out. Once you figure out where you want to play and you have to really decide, going back to what, what um, Miklas said, what role do you want to play in this? Do you want to be an orchestrator of a broader platform in the ecosystem or do you want to be a participant? Or do you want to you know, be, you know, maybe in some cases you want to be a, a, a platform owner and platform provider. Other cases you may be a participant. So really having a clear view of that and then thirdly, you need to also have, okay, where do I need for me to play in that space and for me to play this role? Where do I, where can I go alone versus where do I need partners and where do I need to acquire? Where do I need to maybe not only just acquire and partner and also come up with some creative collaboration? So really figuring that out, the third step. Uh, and then once you have these three steps, where do you want to play, what role do you want to play, and then what partners do I, do I need? And then you have to have the operating model behind it to really execute on that. To us, those are the steps that you would need to take, practically speaking, to be really um, successful in this ecosystem evolution. One of the other takeaways I got from your book, and I will tell people that 
if you want to get a little bit of insight and able to quantifiably take advantage of when things accelerate, this is where the margins, what used to be the margins of millionaires. Now it's really the margins of billionaires. Uh, two of the takeaways that I had from the book, uh, the ecosystem of economy is to pay close attention and you, and you foreshadowed it, pay close attention to the first month. Uh, what we're capable of what we're capable of doing in the first month is you know mind blowing and then the other takeaway was on the other end which is play co close attention to the last mile which was also foreshadowed by the consumer perspective and advice that you gave uh, i would love for you to share some of the insights that are in the book to hopefully stimulate the interest that i had uh, for the multitudes of people that can really make billions of dollars by reading this book and getting your great insight you know, how important is that first month and how important is the last mile? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Maybe connectingly with Michael to your point, right? When you were mentioning big companies who are making substantial bets. Uh, if you translate David's framework here, what does this mean? First and foremost, you are not trying to find one magical solution, a silver bullet anymore. You are experimenting, trying multiple things, you may have a much more segmented approach. The word is not about generic customer anymore, not even about segmentation, yeah, micro-segmentation, nano-segmentation, eventually full personalization, right? Which enables you to manage these risks, but it, re it requires you to be able to do much more in this first months. You have to have the ability to roll out, test, A-B test, fail, uh, multiple things at the same time, rather than the old school classical, one big bet and then we close our eyes and pray. And on the other side of making sure the last mile, this is the other very, very important point. Uh, the ultimate value creation in this future of ecosystem is the ownership of customer in a very positive sense, like really being the gateway, understanding and knowing individual customers. That also requires personalization. That doesn't require one big generic message that requires creating customer service and customer experience, which is truly differentiated. That almost always comes down on the last mile. It used to be impossible to do that with current cost of technology, AI, as Venkat has mentioned, cost of computing dropping radically. It is now possible to create this totally individual as lost my experience. And the moment you do this, you avoid the problems that Michael have raised. You guys are amazing. Everybody check out the ecosystem economy. Venkat at Luri and my friend Miklos Dietz. Thank you both. Please make me one promise because uh, this is my, what I call, you guys will get this at McKinsey. This is a straight street hustle, my podcast. I've done 505 of these. I get three to four geniuses on here every day teaching me. So instead of paying Stanford or Harvard for an additional degree, I just get you guys to come on, give me your books for free, read them, and then you teach me everything in your book. So thank you. I probably made a couple million today just from this episode. I hope other people have taken advantage of you too and your incredible genius and insight from years of experience. Uh, so please come back. Give me a free lesson anytime. We'd love to have you. Well, thanks for having us, David and Michael. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, you guys Indeed. are great. Don't forget to smile, Ben Cat. Don't forget to smile. Well, there you go. All right. I'll teach you to be a media star. That's my specialty. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good.
you get those economy, those economy guys talking about money and all of a sudden things, shit gets really serious, Michael. That's, uh, that's right, man. <laughs> I got to say, and I don't take myself so seriously. Anyway, we got the founder of The Vine, the philanthropist herself and author as well, Divine.Earth, The Divine, and I hope I pronounced this, Adria Dunn. Welcome to Office Hours. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. Oh, thanks for coming back. I was just talking about gratitude of the future is faith or hope. And so what a great guest to have on. Uh, <laughs> we're going to discuss uh, how important it is to have gratitude in the future. And uh, your book, Divine, it's a message of divine. It's a message of hope from around the world. And uh, looking for the light, the love and the lessons, being the light, the love and the lessons, which a particle of light will overcome a million particles of darkness. We need someone like you that have taken the lessons around the world and being able to articulate them in great stories and lessons so that other can live with the higher intelligence like our friends before, but also with intuition and inspiration. Uh, for you, how important was it uh, to tell those stories in your new book uh, or your book? I think it's a little bit uh, not brand new. Um, it's Lessons of Hope. The stories were actually written by a community that I put together on a WhatsApp chat during the pandemic to raise money for charity. So I can't say that I authored it. Um, it was written by 47 people from 33 countries. And we wanted to inspire hope during a very dark time. And I think we accomplished that. Um, there's all different types of stories, everyone and anything um, from loss to Holocaust survivors. We have people who've been through the civil rights movement, um, uh, people that have gone through uh, wars. Um, one gentleman lost his legs and became an Olympian. So um, the idea was, is that if you're having the worst day of your life, you can pick up that book and definitely feel better. So that was the goal. I wish I would have been interviewed for losing over a hundred million dollars. What do you think, Michael? <laughs> I, I think you should have been interviewed twice for that, David. That's uh, quite the yeah, accomplishment, yeah. my friend. I don't think for, many for people having, can or having that. your finger cut off by your mom. That would have been a good one. <laughs> yeah, that, you know that's that's a heavy spirit, and you know that's actually a really good point, David. You know, coming from a, a massively traumatic background and now being a, a leader in this space of trauma healing, I can't help but think about the importance of the stories, and most importantly, the stories that we tell ourselves. One, one of the biggest reasons why I founded my company was a very similar mission as you. It's very much how do you create and show people possibility, not necessarily only through your own stories and your own experiences, but between that of others as well. You know, when I, I think about so many of the darkest things that happen, when when you think and you take and extrapolate the lessons that you've learned from all of these 47 incredible humans, do you think that there is a single cornerstone or a single cross section where all of these people in their darkest moments were able to pull through it? Is there something to that? And, and what is it that they've been able to do to be able to take their darkest moments and turn it into light? Um, I think that I think what I took away from it is that aside from being a book of hope, it really was a book of suffering and that suffering is universal. So none of us can escape it. All of us have different aspects of things that we deal with. Some of it's financial, some of it's mental, some of it's spiritual, um, some of it can be health issues. Unfortunately, we never escape it. Um, so as I was digging in and going through these stories with people and, and helping them to kind of bring it out, because some of it was traumatic, some of them were shy to talk about it. Um, but there, but when they came out and spoke about the things that were 
I guess, deeply traumatic for them, they were able to take that pain and um, turn it into something that was positive so they could use that to inspire others or use that pain as fuel to heal other people. Um, so I think that was the catalyst for it. And then one of the ladies in the book, um, she's, she's incredible. Her name is e Dr. Edith Egger. She's a Holocaust survivor. And she studied under um, Viktor Frankl, who was um, famous for writing Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and um, don't quote me, but I think it was logotherapy that he created, um, which is um, which is basically um, teaches us that what is our perception of our reality and what is our thoughts, um, you know, can manifest and and give us hope um, to get through some of the most difficult and trying times. And when if you if you ever read Man's Search for Meaning. Um, he talks a lot about how when in the concentration camps, their eyes just kind of go blank. And very quickly after that, they, they, it's like a fire in them goes out. And then quickly after that, they would pass away. So it's mind over matter. It's, it's, it's our heart and soul that gets us through very difficult times. Um, so anyway, sorry, that's a long explanation, but. That was a beautiful explanation and yeah. one of my favorite books as well. And utilization of the participation and the perception, uh, especially as it, adheres to gratitude, forgiveness, and accountability are essential into not only our survival, but our ability to get over the suffering. Uh, if you look at the common denominator, uh, two of them, of hope and suffering in your book of all 47 of the participants, um, I'm always curious, was there a significant difference between those that uh, had hope from suffering uh, naturally uh, compared to those who have hope from man-made constructive life circumstances like war. Um, mm -hmm. Was there a difference in either the mindset, heart set, or hand set of hope that is created by man or hope that was created by nature? Yeah, that's a deep one. So I think where it goes deeper into that is trying to figure out what is forgiveness and how to truly forgive someone that's hurt you. So one of our authors in the book, um, he's now the Minister of Economy for Armenia, but one of the letters that he wrote was to Azerbaijan because at the time they were at war and um, his friend um, lost his legs, uh, basically uh, was in a bombing incident. Um, so that was the only, it was the main war that was going on during the pandemic at that time. Um, and he struggled with writing that letter. We also had a gal from Palestine. She was a refugee who wrote a letter to Israel um obviously that's very complicated um she had told me that three times she had given up on that letter but she in the end wrote a really beautiful letter but it, it can't i think the key is is that if you're going to really write a letter to inspire people you have to look past your own hurt because we all hurt each other all the time that's what human beings do like you've probably had people be mean to both of you and it, and no, it does hurt come it's on mean. are you kidding no one's <laughs> ever been mean to us <laughs> It hurts. It does. Like I've had people be mean to holy. me and I raise money for charity for a living. And I'm just like, I'm always perplexed by it. But I, I think if you can understand that, um, that they're suffering themselves and that they're dealing with something that they maybe don't have the tools or the understanding and how to work past it. If you can find it in yourself to kind of forgive them, it hurts less. Um, and th that's the only way that I figured out how to let it go. But that seems to be the theme throughout the book is 
human suffering or humans causing suffering to others, you have to forgive them to move past it. Whereas nature, it's easier to say, oh, okay, I got caught in a tornado or my house burned down. It's a fluke situation that I couldn't control. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, if your spouse cheats on you or if you, um, you know, a drunk driver kills your kid in a car accident, you know, like these are things that people really deal with every day. And the reality of that is, is that until they really find that forgiveness of in their heart for that person, they're not going to be able to let go of that pain. Yeah, that that's so incredibly true. I mean, you, I couldn't have said it better myself. Forgiveness is everything. I mean, it really is. And I think so much of that forgiveness, if you're willing to actually do the deep inner work, you're going to find out begins with you. Um, I, I often ask my clients, how can you forgive other people if you haven't forgiven yourself? And so yeah. my my hope is that people also find that that inner forgiveness for the turmoil that they bring into their own life, both as David puts it, um, genetically and energetically. I think it's so incredibly important. Um, the vine is a, a powerful concept. It's a social media impact movement that that bridges these leaders, these incredible human beings from around the world. But it's not something based in social media, which I think is really fascinating and an important aspect of of a shift that's possible in, in the world that we're in, where we see more and more people leaving social media due to the mental health ramifications and impacts. What I'm wondering, in, in a world in which social media does seem to, for lack of a better way to phrase it, supersede almost all logic, um, how can you step into this place of creating global impact without having to always leverage those tools that everyone feels are necessary to, to grow an impact. So you completely nailed it. Um, I started my group on a single WhatsApp chat and it's still there, it's still running today. We're actually moving it into an artificial intelligence platform, which will be ready by next year. Um, we created an algorithm for connecting world leaders in a safe space, but I realized there was no safe space for them because the folks that own social media platforms, really what they're doing is they're creating algorithms that advertise to you and they have an agenda. And so if, if I came to you with an agenda, you wouldn't trust me. It's the same thing. So you, I think people want pure content and they want to know that the content's coming from a soulful place, a place where they can trust it. And there's also a lot of fake news out there. Um, no one's accountable for where the news is coming from. Um, so I think I, I have created a safe space um, and um, I have 7,000 people in my community now from 70 countries. Um, a lot of them don't really use Facebook or Instagram. So we do kind of everything. Um, we do our own Zoom calls. We do our own meetups. We do our own community events. Um, and I'm building them a home to live in because right now they live on WhatsApp. <laughs> so... <laughs> So your, your next book is super aligned with Michael and I. Um, you're writing a book about unity uh, yeah. and, mu and music. And yeah. uh, it's something I'm, uh, you know, I, I write a book every six months. I don't publish them all. I'll let the correct timing and risk tolerance uh, utilized uh, correctly. But uh, sports and, and unity also fit together, which is my core competency. Um, and how do you choose the 50 artists uh from around the world to what's the criteria to pick them to interview them about how music is unifying us so the the first book that i created it was completely organic and random 
And it, even the layout of the book, I didn't choose who went first in the book. It, I wanted it to be completely neutral. I didn't want to say, oh, I'm putting this person first or this country and this chapter above this chapter. So the idea was, is that it was organic and people made suggestions. So 100% of the people in, in my first book came from the Vine community itself. They came to me and were like, hey, do you want to meet Jamon Hansu? And I was like, heck yes, I want to meet Jamon Hansu. And what does he care about? And so that's kind of what happened. Um, the music is something that's really personal to me. Um, my father was a musician, but unfortunately he was also a drug addict and passed away. And so um, I'm dedicating this book to my dad, but raising money for mental health causes. And uh, I plan on trying to make it as diverse as possible with people from all around the world. I know America takes the center stage when it comes to media and entertainment a lot, but there's a whole world out there of music that um, honestly has influenced us. Um, so they could, I just got an artist from the Congo, for example, um, and I have an artist from Japan that just joined, he's a famous composer. Um, these are all people that were recommended from the group. But what happens is, is whenever I start a new community in the Vine, it just kind of takes a life on of its own. Um, like I just met the drummer for Lenny Kravitz and I've been collaborating with him. And then I had a Zoom call with um, one of Robbie Krieger, one of the members of the Doors. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. But you gotta, um, meet, you gotta meet Tommy Tellerico. He uh, <laughs> has the world record for the biggest symphony ever created the most people in china and okay. he created a symphony uh with music of video games and i think oh, cool so look, look up tommy tellerico if you need an introduction he's one of my favorite but i think when it comes to unifying the world and finding different ways to communicate via music he would be an amazing addition not that you have any shortage of people of quality i just think it's a different perspective that you may enjoy as well and I oh yeah He's so great. I don't have anyone from China. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It'd be a perfect Italian guy from China. It'd be perfect. Um, <laughs> anyway, we have uh, our next guest waiting in their wings. Adria, thanks for coming back. Adria Thank you. It was nice to meet doctor. you, too. Thank you for all your message of faith, hope, and forgiveness from around the world. Check out the Vine. And next year, I can't wait to see uh, what you're building uh, for all of those amazing people around the world so we can unite and also have gratitude of the future, which I call hope. Uh, thank you, Adria. Come join us again. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Last but not least, the doctors in the house, Dr. Joel A. Davis Brown, Chief Visionary Officer, co-founder of Numos. Welcome to Office Hours. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a good pleasure to be here. Oh, such a such a pleasure to have you. And um, it's interesting because I had the executive vice president of Netflix on and it was the first time uh, as we all utilize different phrases and terms that hopefully unite us uh, that I learned a valuable lesson. And it was over the word queer, which I bring up sure. because it's in the title of, of your new book. And let me, let me tell you why. I grew up playing a game called Smear the Queer. And oh. it was a football game. Uh, and I never thought about what that word meant in the context of the title when I was six years old, running with my Nerf football in the projects in Akron, Ohio, surrounded by people of every type of background. And until I was older, I was a football coach. And with my daughter, I was like, yeah, let's play Smear the Queer. And the kids went silent. They looked at me like, what the, you know, and I, I was like, what? They're like, you, you, dad, you, you can't say that. I was like, what? And I, and 
I realized what I had said and why. And then I ended up meeting the executive vice president of Netflix, who uh, is openly uses her, her in her title of herself as we have. She says queer. I'm I'm a queer. And I asked her. I said, "Well, I'm super confused. You know, I've worked in the with the Robinson Foundation. I represent the Clemente family. Warren Moon's my business partner. I'm trying to figure out." you know, what to call people of color. And now I'm all confused because you're using a word that I was told not to use. And she gave me this great piece of advice. She said, David, why don't you ask people if you're confused, how would you like to be addressed? Right. And I'm like, you know, some people think I'm fairly intelligent. Why didn't I think of that? Uh, so when I look at the new book title, uh, The Souls of a Queer Folk, How Understanding the LGBTQ Culture, uh, culture Values, can transform leadership practice. Um, and I absolutely think that's true because my definition of a leader, which is mine, meaning please ask me what your definition is. It's, hey, if you want to be a leader, you have to be an intelligent follower. And your title reeks of being an intelligent follower. So for me, I'm looking for lessons to help everyone listening in our community. We have a very open-minded, open-hearted, and open-handed community that has a lot to unlearn but a lot to learn as well. And so I'm hoping sure. you can talk about some of the lessons to unlearn and learn from your, your book. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, you know, in, in terms of the word queer, I, I would say to you, um, I had to learn or had to, I had a relationship with it that was negative as well. And context matters. And when you think about the word queer is origin means looking at things differently, being nonconformist, um, kind of standing on the outside of what's traditional and normative and, and asking yourself, does this work? And questioning and pushing boundaries. And so uh, I think that's really important given some of the things that are taking place today. My book was born from just doing some research and being nerdy, really, um, because as a young gay or queer man, at one point, I thought to myself, there are questions and answers about being black that seem pretty clear and straightforward. I've gotten information about coming from an indigenous background, but it's the LGBTQ aspect that's really not um, as explicit as I would like it to be. So I conducted research. And then as I looked at the values that make up the community, um, I realized that a lot of what we emulate, a lot of what we uh, embody by virtue of our culture is what the world needs. And so what do I mean by that? When you look at um, what's happened just in the last five years, we've dealt with a lot of unpredictability, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility, whether we're talking about COVID or extremism or um, just climate change. Well, what other community has dealt with as much um, volatility, uncertainty, and ambiguity as the queer community, particularly when you look at the fact that right now we are dealing with, you know, just in the U.S. alone, 650 plus anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced across the country. We have people like, you know, Erdogan in Turkey who have targeted and scapegoated queer people, and that's happened in other places like Brazil as well. So we could lament that, which I think obviously is important, but what I thought about is, what is it that makes people able to survive and thrive in those environments? And if we can tap into what that is, then everybody can learn from that because we're going to need to learn how to be more adaptive, more flexible, more agile, given the, the variables and the things that are happening in our society. So that's what led me to realize that a lot of what queer people do naturally can really inform and instruct people in their day-to-day -day practice of living and how they work with other people, but also how they lead their communities.
Yeah, that, that's phenomenal. And I, I fully support, I think it's beautiful to have these conversations. You know, one of the things being a, a biracial man in America and, and looking at accessing reality from two different worlds, I've always had the ability to look at world from two different worlds. I always get both of these perspectives, both from my family and my community. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating, you hit it right on the head, the last five years have been massively different in the way that we're having these conversations publicly, internally and externally. But one of the things uh, and, and I love your insight on this, especially from the uh, leadership perspective, because as we continue to bring more of these things to awareness, you're now faced with these large corporations using them and almost pandering to make profit. And you see it sometimes right. it works and sometimes it completely backfires. And a question that I think I can go a little bit deeper that I asked a previous guest is as people in leadership, as business owners, as entrepreneurs, consultants, speakers, authors, coaches, how do how do we step into these very difficult conversations with leaving the pandering to the side, not making it about revenue and being strong and capable leaders through these windows of education, whether it be through cultural values or the LGBTQ communities? Well, that's a really big question. And what I would say to you is it really comes back to your ethics. Um, fortunately, a lot of this conversation and a lot of the uh, accountability has been driven by the market. You know, you have people who are working for the organizations, you have communities who are saying, we want our organizations and companies to operate with a sort of ethics that it's not just pride washing. You're not just coming to the community, for example, during June and saying, we believe in you, we care about you. But then after June 30th, you're going back to business as normal. So I think it, what it requires is, you know, consumers and employees to be more accountable, but it also requires a level of authenticity. And I think understanding that it's not just about waving a flag or going to a parade. And in fact, that's something I actually talked about today, with today being the first day of pride, is that we need, you know, people of all faiths, backgrounds, uh, et cetera, to really get in the game because the stakes are pretty high. So what does that mean? It means looking at yourself, and this goes back to one of the core values. So back to the question that was asked originally, what are some of the lessons that people can take away from this? When you're being an activist, okay, so let's look at it from that storm standpoint. A lot of these organizations, companies are saying, we want to be more activists. But what you have to activate to be an activist is consciousness. Activ mm -hmm. um, being an activist is not just about, um, you know, posting something on Facebook. It's not about having a colorful flyer or poster or just being on a, a float in a parade. It means about being clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it. It means tapping into your values. And so... If we look at the community as an example, and certainly the LGBTQ community is not the only community who embodies this, but we embody in a specific and particular way. It is about, you know, trying to tap into your greatest self and to do so from a place of, of integrity, of honesty, um, of care for your fellow human being. And that's a different form of activism. And that's what I would like to see us to get back to, because of what I've seen um, over the past 20 years, and of course, we're you know far removed from what we've seen back in the 60s and 70s, and we've seen some elements of that with Black Lives Matter and Me Too, but we've seen what I think, you know, kind of the superficial activism, the cerebral activism, but not the type of activism where it's really connected to the heart, mind, and body, and spirit of who the people are. And that's what I think, you know, we have to press our leaders to think about, not just doing stuff, as you say, to pander, but to elevate and to connect and to look to be transformative in the communities that we actually serve. And in the context of the definition that you have of queer, and uh, recently I reread Eckhart Tolle's uh, Power of Now, and he talks about that definition, not in the context of utilizing the word queer, but just utilizing that definition for 
uh, individuality and those that are different uh, in, of course, their beliefs or their appearance have a better way to a higher consciousness. And uh, it is actually an advantage uh, in conscious speaking, uh, not in the pragmatic world. There's definitely a disadvantage of being an individual uh, still today because of fear. Uh, right. And so for me, with no uh, experience in being a person of color, the closest thing I get to discrimination is just being born into a Jewish family and nobody gives a shit whether I'm really Jewish or not. It just, they can hate me because my mom is Jewish and my brother's a rabbi. Uh, that's my closest right. thing. Uh, but, you know, besides something like that, uh, what piece of advice do you give in the leadership role that we can do? Because I see our leaders creating fear to create votes. <laughs> I would love is you an enlightened leader, you know, what do you, yeah. what do you, yeah. What, and so do I, uh, what, what do you do? Cause you're on so many stages, you're a poet, entrepreneur, you know, how do you teach reducing fear? How do you explain that mm-hmm. instead of inciting it and, in, in, you know, in, in fueling it? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think what I, you know, I pride myself now on being an awareness um, agent as opposed to a change agent. And I'm not the yeah. first one to use that phrase, but I think when we encounter people who are different, I mean, there's three ways in which you become more aware of who you are by interrogating yourself, by looking at the relationship that you have with others and also how you engage the environment. And I think at each of those points, being aware of what's happening within you when you are meeting, meeting, or meeting people from a different background or you're doing something different or when you're just kind of going through your life on a day-to-day basis, what's happening with you and to understand what's, where is the, um, what's the tension, where's the conflict, where's the ease, where's the comfort, where's um, the curiosity and the questioning. And I think in that awareness, then being aware of what is it that you have to work on? I mean, I think that's kind of the paradox, right? Is that sometimes we think we have to focus on other people, but really our engagement with the world is really about building greater awareness about ourselves. which then if we are really um, truthful and honest in this process, it can give us insight into behaviors that we need to change, mindsets that we need to adopt, thoughts we need to let go of. So that's what I would like for us to do is, you know, in a culture now where everybody's talking a lot, everybody wants to, you know, be present and visible, I would actually like us to go more inward and to be more clear about what is going on with us Mm -hmm. as a way of building greater enlightenment. If we can do that and look at it as, yeah, when you meet another person, you're really encountering some aspect of yourself. And let's be clear about what that is that scares you. So for example, part of the reason why I think, there's so much disdain for queer people is because we dare to be push boundaries. And I think for a lot of people, there's safety in the conformity and safety is kind of a, uh, I put it in quotes because um, it's elusive. It's uh, illusory. You feel like you can con- be conformist and you feel like you can fit in, but really at some point, I don't think many of us can or do. And I think queer people represent p- pushing things towards the edge and exploring that part of ourselves that maybe people don't want to see. And I think queer people have kind of flipped it on his head to say, we're going to embrace all of our weirdness, quote unquote, and use it to our advantage and see it as something beautiful. And I think a lot of people could use you know, that prescription to say, what is it about me uniquely that makes me weird or different? And how can I leverage that to be in service of the, of the community and service of society? Um, but it's all about awareness, looking at oneself instead of pointing the finger at other people and saying, oh, they're different. And somehow that makes me afraid to engage them. Mm. 
your superpowers of not only storytelling for leaders, but story listening. And I am also on a crusade to learn what people are listening for. That's why I have this show. That's why I bring on people like you and Michael Unbroken as well. Dr. Joel A. Davis Brown, Chief Visionary Officer and Co-Founder of Numos. Go to numos.com. But his new book is for everyone, The Souls of Queer Folk, How to Understand the LGBTQ Cultural values and can transform your leadership practices uh, in all aspects of life. Keep doing the work you're doing. If you need any support, reach out to Michael and I. Uh, I know I have a lot to unlearn, but I am doing my best to appreciate not only the differences, uh, but appreciate what we have the same as well. So uh, thank you for joining us and helping us all get a little bit higher in enlightenment and awareness. I really appreciate it. Thank you and best wishes to both of you. You're awesome. Thank you, man. Awesome. All right. We got a lot to go on today, man. Our guests were extraordinary. That's extraordinary. What's your takeaway of the day, Michael? I'm broken. Absolutely phenomenal. Today was both inspiring and beautiful. And uh, the intersection between all four of these incredible guests, I, I think Dr. Jolie Brown, Davis Brown, excuse me, really wrapped it up. And two words. Wait, did I screw up his name? Is it Joel? No, I screwed up his name. No, no, that was me. That was okay. Me. No, I I'm the myself. name butcher. I'm like, God, did I screw up another name? <laughs> no, no. But I, I think the intersection existed in what he said, which hit me, which I wrote down, activate consciousness. I love it. Yeah, it's weird how, you know, what I read and because I spend a minimum of an hour a day doing research and sometimes I read some really old stuff, right? Marcus Aurelius, Eckhart Tolle, Victor Frankl was today, you know, human nature never changes. And I think that collaboration of where we're at and the acceleration of everything, you know, the one thing I want Raluca and GD to write down that I really want to start focusing in on is the impact of the first, first month and the last mile uh, in all aspects with all guests. Like if we can really take advantage of what we can do in the first month and in the last mile, uh, we can maximize the productivity, accessibility, and gratitude in life. And, uh, you know, because of technology, it's had the greatest impact on the first month and the last mile. And we can really might as well focus our attention and intention on getting the maximized result to accelerate in a trajectory where we think we want to be protected and promoted. Uh, and I love just the wholeness of the show that we're all the same. I know so many differences you can see, but 99.9 percent .9 of us are all just the same and why can we keep focusing on the 0.1 percent is bewildering to me in my activation of awareness uh which is why i love having you on blaine bartlett you better be jealous if you're listening to us i know you're on the way to the bahamas but your job is on the line michael unbroken just bringing it every single show i bring them on at michael unbroken host of the think unbroken podcast dear friend of mine can't wait to see you soon you're always showing up See you soon, brother. Take care. See you soon. All right, everyone. We already did Friday training, so I can't tell you to show up, but you can watch the replay. Sometimes we do Friday trainings on Thursdays, and the reason I did it is I'm off, and I'd love to see you on the road. I am off to the UK. I'm off to Israel. I am off to Scotland. I'm back to the UK. I am in New York, in Chicago, in Toronto, in Vegas. I'm back at home as well. So uh, over the next two months, I may only be home a few days. Uh, please email me to keep up with me. I'm going to be doing meetups in every city, giving away books, signing them, sending to them, chipping them, whatever I need to do. Uh, we also have VIP dinners in oh, Philly. I'm going to Philly. 
So Philly, Chicago, New York, Toronto, some of the few places, Vegas, we're having VIP dinners again. Michael's come, Luca's come, Gigi's come to those dinners. They're life-changing. They have people like Jim Quick and Austin Eckler, Michael Chandler, Jeff Hoffman from Priceline, guys like Dan Fleischman and Fenster. All the characters will show up. Uh, it's just amazing. So join us on the road, whether you're going to be in Europe, at the UK, or Middle East, in Israel, or Scotland, Chicago, Philly, New York. It doesn't matter. We want you. So please email me, get my exact schedule, david at dmeltzer.com. Most importantly, I want to thank Raluca, Michael Unbroken, and Gigi for always showing up and doing such a great job for our community. Remember, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self. Do good deeds. I'll see you from around the world. Take care.